the Covenant wailing women and living amongst the idols in exile. All that and more on The Backdrop. Hi everyone, Curtis here. Thanks for joining me on The Backdrop. We're taking a look at Jeremiah chapters 8 through 11 here today, and there's a lot of ground to cover. And I want to look at three big buckets and ideas, and then a couple little extra nuggets along the way as we work through some of the things going on in these particular chapters of Jeremiah. So let's get right to it. First, throughout these chapters, really throughout the book of Jeremiah, there are references to and resonances with the book of Deuteronomy. And the idea of the covenant that God makes with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. The basic structure of that covenant is the promises Israel and God make to each other, and then the consequences if those promises are broken. We, Israel, promise to follow the way that God lays out for us, not to have any other gods and to live justly. And then on the other hand, I, Yahweh, promise to provide for and protect you in this land that I'm giving you. But then if Israel doesn't keep its promises, then God won't protect and provide for them in that land. One of the places this shows up in a bit of a hidden way is in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. It says, Gathering up, I'll destroy them. Yahweh's words. There'll be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The leaves will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. Gathering up seems a bit of a strange way of starting this verse. But John Goldengay argues it's a reference to what is sometimes called the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths one of the main religious festivals talked about in the Old Testament. That feast was intended to celebrate the harvest and the covenant, because the harvest is an obvious marker of God's continued provision for Israel, God's continued keeping of the covenant. The feast was also called the Feast of Ingathering, because it was the time for gathering in the harvest. Again, the symbol of the covenant. But this verse says there will be no harvest, no ingathering. No marker of the covenant. Instead, the people will be gathered up for destruction. Israel has broken the terms of the covenant. The covenant is null and void. The harvest isn't coming. Why is all this so? Chapter 9, verse 3, contains a list of accusations against Israel that are taken directly from the commands in Deuteronomy for how they are supposed to behave as God's people. It says, they've bent their tongue, their bow has been falsehood. It's not in the cause of truthfulness that they have been strong in the country because they have proceeded from evil to evil and not acknowledged me. Yahweh's words. Watch each person, his neighbor, don't trust any brother because every brother is totally crooked. It's kind of an interesting note. Literally, this is every brother is a Jacob, the name that means trickster and the name of the patriarch whose name becomes Israel. So every brother is a Jacob. (laughs) And every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Each person cheats his neighbor. They don't speak the truth. They've taught their tongue false speech. They've got tired being wayward. You have dwelt in the midst of deceit. In deceit, they've refused to acknowledge me. Yahweh's words. Again, many of those words are straight out of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, they describe the character of God and how Israel is supposed to live according to the character of God. But here they are shown to have gone the opposite way from the covenant they have made with God. Similarly, all of chapter 11 is very Deuteronomy-centric, with its emphasis on listening to and obeying the word of God. 
Incidentally, listen and, uh, listen and obey are the same word in Hebrew. There are several verses in Jeremiah 11 that just match right up with verses from Deuteronomy itself and how that book talks about the covenant. So this is all the way through this passage, this emphasis on the covenant in Deuteronomy. And another interesting wrinkle in this theme of the covenant is right at the end of chapter 10 in verse 25. Jeremiah's prayer turns to a plea for retribution against the nations that have destroyed Israel. Pour your wrath on the nations that haven't acknowledged you, on the families that haven't proclaimed your name, because they've devoured Jacob, devoured him and finished him off and devastated his abode. The irony here, probably intentional on Jeremiah's part, is that acknowledging God, proclaiming God's name, those are covenant words. They are what Israel agreed to do in Deuteronomy, but they haven't done those things. And so this prayer would rebound onto Judah itself. Who are the nations who haven't acknowledged Yahweh? Who are the families who haven't proclaimed God's name and deserve wrath? Israel, Jerusalem. We've been through 10 chapters of Jeremiah accusing the people of this very thing. So who has devoured Jacob? Jacob has devoured himself. Israel has broken the covenant, and so God does not need to hold up God's end of the bargain either. And yet, in the middle of the chapters we are looking at, in chapter 9, after a long passage about bringing out the professional mourning women who we will talk about in a minute, there are these words in verse 23. Yahweh has said this, The expert isn't to exult in his expertise. The mighty warrior isn't to exult in his might. The wealthy person isn't to exult in his wealth. Rather, The person who exults or boasts is to exult in this, showing good sense and acknowledging me. Again, covenant language. That I am Yahweh acting with commitment, with authority, and with faithfulness in the country because I delight in these things. Those words of who Yahweh is, acting with commitment, authority, and faithfulness, those are the things Yahweh is supposed to do as part of the covenant. God is saying, even despite your failure to live up to the covenant, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain, even so. Paul picks up on these verses at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 29, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God is the source of life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's hidden by differences in translation and Greek versus Hebrew, but the actions of Yahweh as told by Jeremiah, acting with commitment, with authority and faithfulness, are the same as the actions by Jesus, as told by Paul. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, God did, in fact, hold up God's end of the bargain, even though God didn't have to. God did stay faithful to the covenant promises that God made, and the way God did that was through Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises God made and kept to Israel all those years ago. Jesus is, as N.T. Wright says, the climax of the covenant. Okay, the next place I wanted to spend some time this week on the backdrop is in chapter 10, verses 6 through 16. There's something really interesting going on here when we look closely at it, and I think it's really fun. This passage on its surface is a contrast between the glory of Yahweh and the emptiness of the other gods, the idols of the nations. And it is that. But what we don't notice in our English translations is that smack in the middle of it, verse 11, is written not in Hebrew like the rest of the Old Testament, except for a couple sections of Daniel and Ezra, 
This is the only other verse outside of those two books that is in Aramaic. And scholars have argued over the significance of this. Some have dismissed it as just like a random thing that got stuck in there by some future scribe or something like that. But I'm more convinced by one of the scholars I read who pointed out that the whole structure of this passage is intended to highlight that verse, not pass over it. We've talked before about the use of chiasm in Jewish poetry. Chiasm. It's this idea that you would structure a poem so that the first and last lines match. Then the second and the second to last lines match. Then the third and the third to last match. And so on, creating layers like an onion that are almost, they almost function like arrows, pointing attention to what's sitting at the center. This is very common in the Bible as a rhetorical structure for highlighting certain points that the author wants to highlight. So look at verse 11 itself, for example. The message in verse 11 is, The gods that didn't make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. The outside is the heavens. The next layer in is the earth. And the center is the message that the gods will perish. That's what's being highlighted. The gods that didn't make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. The main point, again, is in the center. These gods will perish. And if we look more broadly at the passage, this idea is even more highlighted within the structure of the whole of verse 6 through 16. So stay with me. Pull out your Bibles if you can, because it'll make it easier to see what I'm talking about. But the outer layer of this passage is verses 6 and 7, which matches up with verse 16. They both contain a message like, there's none like Yahweh, the God of Jacob. Then the next layer in, verses 8 and 9, and verses 14 and 15 line up. The idols are dense, stupid, and empty, is the message in those ones. And then you go one more layer in, and verse 10 matches up with verses 12 and 13. Yahweh is the true and powerful God who can shake the earth. And then at the center is the verse we've just seen, verse 11. So the passage as a whole is pointing us to verse 11. You're to speak in this way to them, and then the bit in Aramaic that we just read. So speak to whom? Remember, these words are written to people in exile, in Babylon, where Aramaic is spoken. You're to speak these words to the people around you in Babylon, the people who follow these empty, powerless idols instead of Yahweh, the powerful living God. Here, use Aramaic words like these ones. And what's the point of the words that you should speak? The point is that their idols will perish. This whole passage is an evangelistic encouragement to the people in exile. You are off in exile where the totalitarian state shows its power through the idols and gods that surround you, but you know the truth. Those idols don't show the power of the state, they show its emptiness. Those idols don't give life, they will perish. Tell the people in exile that. Tell them about the living God, Yahweh, who created the world with a word and can make the earth shake. Tell them where life is to be found when their gods perish. I just think this is so cool. We live in exile too, amongst temples to the idols of money and power and violence and image. And we too know that however finely decorated those idols are, they're lifeless and empty. They are no match for the living God who offers life to those who put their trust in God. 
And we too can bring that message in words and in a language that our culture will understand. Your gods will perish, but there's none like Yahweh. Now, speaking of the gods of the other nations, just a couple quick, interesting bits here. One is from this passage, actually. Verse 13 specifically mentions Yahweh's power over the storm, bringing lightning and rain. That's not an accident because the chief gods in the surrounding nations tended to be the storm gods. This is a theological statement. Your empty gods don't control the storms. Yahweh does. And then another quick thing in the previous chapter, Uh, chapter 9, verse 21, it says, because death is climbing through our windows, coming into our fortifications to cut off children from the streets, young men from the squares. Several of the scholars I read mentioned that in the Baal myths, written in the language of Ugaritic, which was used by the Canaanite people who lived north of Israel in what is now Syria, there's a story where Baal and another god are building a house, and they're arguing about whether to build it with a window for fear that Mot, the god of death, might sneak in through that window. And sure enough, later in the story, Mot does sneak in through the window and carries Baal off. So this image is one that was in the cultural waters. Okay, and now for the last main idea that I wanted to explore today. We're going to stay in the same chapter with the mention of death sneaking in through the window. Starting in verse 17, Yahweh calls for the lamenting women to come and mourn over the fate of Israel. Yahweh armies has said this, Think and summon the lamenting women so that they may come. Send for the expert women so that they may come. They must hurry and raise a wailing over us so our eyes may run with tears. Our pupils flow with water. Because the sound of wailing, it has made itself heard from Zion. How we are destroyed, we are very shamed because we are abandoning our country, because they've overthrown our dwellings. Because listen, women, to Yahweh's message. Your ear must receive the message from his mouth. Teach wailing to your daughters, lamentation one woman to her neighbor, because death is climbing through our windows, coming into our fortifications to cut off children from the streets, young men from the squares. Speak like this, Yahweh's words. Human corpses will fall like dung on the surface of the ground, like a sheaf behind the reaper with no one gathering it up. There are many cultures to this day who have what are basically professional mourners who would come to a family where death has happened and will mourn. We see this in some stories of Jesus raising people from the dead and telling the professional mourners to go on home. There's no death here. Not anymore. In most cultures, this is not a highly respected profession, but it is seen as a necessary one. And it's almost always women who do the job. The scholar Christopher Wright comments that one of the questions raised by books like Jeremiah is, why is it that it's always women who suffer the most for the sins of humanity? But beyond that, this passage brings up some really interesting points for us in our very different cultural context. The first is that this is one of the many instances in the Bible that's been studiously overlooked by men for centuries, where God's word is spoken to and through women, while it is ignored by men. We have seen so many instances where Jeremiah condemns the false prophets, the false messages of the priests, the wayward, unfaithful shepherds, which in this context is referring to the rulers, the kings of Israel. The men who were supposed to be in charge in that time and place have not only failed to heed the word of God, they have actively opposed it and spouted lies in opposition to it. 
If you want to know the truth, God says, listen to the women. These lamenting women are the real experts, as verse 17 goes on to say. Although some translations use the word skilled or something like that instead, but it's the same word as is used to describe experts in the Torah. The experts here are the women who are mourning and wailing over the fate of Jerusalem. They know that, as verse 19 says, the people are very shamed, whereas in other passages, the men refuse to be shamed. God's words, the truth, is in the mouths of these women's wailings, not the false messages of peace of the men whose society has looked to. The women are saying what all should have been saying. The second interesting thing here is that in verse 18, which is still God speaking, it says, They must hurry and raise a wailing over us, so our eyes may run with tears, our pupils flow with water. This is another example of God's emotional anguish over the fate of God's people, and it references one of the reasons that these professional mourners existed. The idea is, as many of you know who have experienced tragedy, that sometimes the first reaction is not sorrow, but shock numbness, an inability to believe and understand that this horrible thing is reality, an inability to accept the terror of it all. I remember spending the day when our daughters Kate and Lucy were born, far too premature to survive, staring blankly at the hospital room television where Tim Tebow was leading the Denver Broncos to an extremely unlikely playoff victory over the Pittsburgh Steelers. I remember gliding down the hallway in a daze, with my eyes bouncing around, noticing details on the paintings and the walls, and watching the second hand tick on the clock above my head. I remember driving home emotionless from the hospital, until we walked in the house, and I saw the new rug that we had bought for the living room, the one that was bigger and softer, so our little girls could learn to crawl and walk and play on it. And I fell on that rug and it all just poured out, finally. The lamenting women are what that rug was for me. They give voice to reality, the horror of it all. And they break through the shock so that we too can give in to reality. We can experience the full terror of it and then come through the other side. And verse 18 tells us God is like that too. God needs the lamenting women to raise a wailing so our eyes, it says, may run with tears. And the plural gives away that this is the royal we, so to speak. It is God's eyes who are still in shock over what is happening to God's beloved people. And God needs the permission to release the mourning and weep. Weeping, mourning, as Christopher Wright points out in his commentary on Jeremiah, they are communal and social exercises. Crying is fundamentally about the social bonds that shared mourning creates. The way in which facing sorrow together allows us to deal with the trauma of it all and come through the other side together. Wright quotes a book called Crying, the Natural and Cultural History of Tears by a man named Tom Lutz, which says, our lack of weeping in our culture is a mark of how little we value community. Our lack of weeping is a mark of how little we value community. God, 
through Jeremiah invites us to be people who weep over the things that need mourning. God invites us to communally identify what is tragically wrong in the world instead of saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because in so doing, in acknowledging reality, we open up the possibility of a future when God will wipe the tears from our eyes. That's where we will be this weekend, actually. Meredith will be preaching on the glimmers of hope that appear in chapter 9 and chapter 12 of Jeremiah. The glimmers that appear blurrily through the tears, but that we are invited to live into, just as the people in exile in Babylon were invited to live into. We hope you'll join us at 9 a.m. on Sunday, Pacific Time. A link will be on our website. Thanks for joining me today on The Backdrop. Also on the website will be show notes for this episode, including some discussion and reflection questions if you'd like to engage with these ideas further. May you this week experience the full range of emotion that God made us to experience, both to be more human, yes, but also to be more like God.